Hi, I'm Hallie Ritsu. And I'm Allison Friedman. And we're the hosts of Personal Jurisdiction, a podcast geared towards helping law students and lawyers explore the variety of career paths available to JDs. And my name is Jonah Perlin, and I'm the host of the How I Lawyer podcast, which is a podcast that interviews lawyers from across the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. This month, May 2022, our podcasts are joining together to feature interviews that focus on a key topic facing our profession, mental health. Although it's not talked about nearly enough, lawyers have long faced serious mental health challenges. And in many instances, these challenges begin during law school and increase throughout lawyers' careers. And the COVID-19 pandemic has amplified these challenges in ways that we're only now just learning about. We are obviously not mental health professionals, nor are we able to solve these problems. That said, we're hoping to use our podcast platforms to connect you, our listeners, to lawyers who have thought deeply about these topics and in some cases have gone through their own challenges too. We hope you learn from these interviews and that they can further destigmatize the conversation about mental health in the legal profession and maybe even provide you with some tools and inspiration in your own journey. So this month, no matter which of our podcast feeds you listen to, you'll hear the same series of interviews centered on this important topic of mental health. So for example, How I Lawyer listeners, you'll get a chance to hear interviews hosted by my friends from Personal Jurisdiction. And Personal Jurisdiction listeners will get to hear some interviews that I hosted. Also, just a heads up that next month, both shows will return to their regularly scheduled programming. We hope you enjoy and gain something from these interviews. And we hope you'll interact with us on social media, including on Twitter, where you can find us at PersonalJXPod. And you can find me at Jonah Perlin. You can also subscribe to our shows wherever you get your podcasts or on LinkedIn. And a quick word of thanks to Law Pods for editing and engineering this introduction and the How I Lawyer-based episodes. And thanks to you for listening. Hello and welcome back. In today's special Mental Health Month episode, I'm excited to speak with Daron Gold, who's a psychotherapist and former practicing lawyer, primarily in the area of family law, from Toronto, Canada. Incidentally, I think he's my first guest from Canada, so welcome. Daron uh, works primarily with lawyers, law students, and judges, as well as other professionals. His personal experience working in the legal profession, coupled with many years of experiences working with lawyers in distress at the Ontario Lawyers Assistance Program, give him a unique and valuable perspective on the challenges faced by those in our profession. In addition to working with lawyers, Daron presents regularly on issues related to mental health for lawyers. He's a graduate of York University and York University's Osgoode Hall Law School, Go Lions, I think I got that right, and the University of Windsor, from which he holds a Master's of Social Work. So welcome to the podcast, Daron. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, and thank you for pronouncing my name in such a perfect, culturally competent way. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's it's funny. Before we dive in, I'll just say on names, because I think it's really important. I have a colleague, uh, Professor Unhee Han at Georgetown, who's writing about names in the legal profession and how important it is to do our best to do that. And how candidly, when you're from the same general background, right, you naturally do that. You don't even notice you're doing that. And it's something that we as professors think about and should think about more. And so I'll, I'll plug uh, Professor Han's work on names. But before we begin on our discussion, specifically about lawyers and mental health, I was hoping you could talk briefly about your path to the practice of law and what drew you to the law in the first place. It's an interesting question because I was just barely drawn to the practice of law, hmm. precariously. I was a, a mediocre student all the way through high school and even into university. Didn't do well initially, had to get my head together. And when I got my head together in the late 80s, 
I was a political science person. I was involved in local politics. I loved politics and I wanted to be in politics. And so when I did my undergrad, I did it in political science and philosophy and loved it. And law school was in many ways the way to go because at the time and maybe even now, it seemed as though most of the people in politics were lawyers. Mm. And I thought, if I want to have a future in politics, maybe I need to go to law school. And so law school, in many ways, was an entree to politics. The problem was, once I got into law school and was going through it for a while, I lost my taste for organized party politics. Hmm. I'm just too idealistic, or at least I was. Maybe I still am. Yeah. But I lost interest in participating in the organized political process, which left me with, oh, I guess I'll be a lawyer then. Right, right. I mean, listeners can't see it, but I have the West Wing box set in the back of my uh, Zoom background. I grew up in the West Wing generation and was also interested in politics and was also a reason to go to law school. And thankfully for many people, that's a great path. And for those of us that choose not to do it professionally, uh, law does leave you with a few options when you're done, which I guess brings me to my next question, which is, what did you do when you started practicing? So initially, um, I struggled in the sense that it was not a good time in the mid-90s job-wise, so I took mm -hmm. work as I could get it. I tried everything from insurance defense, plaintiff-side insurance law. I did some construction work and construction lien work. I did some patent and trademark work. I did work in whatever general practice I could get work in. Right. But I eventually uh, moved into family law primarily with some other civil litigation because ultimately family law felt like as close to something that aligns with my values as anything else in the law. Part of the problem for me in law was I wasn't passionate about suing someone over faulty widgets. It just didn't feel like something I was put on earth for. I wasn't passionate about real estate transactions. So family law allowed me to work with people who were in distress, work with women who were, uh, who were leaving intimate partner violence and needed to find safety and rebuild their lives. It allowed me to work with human things because human things were interesting to me, people issues, hmm. and family law was people issues to me. So it allowed me to do work that fed my soul in some measure, not in enough of a measure, as you might imagine, because I didn't stay in law, but it, it was as close to an area of law that I could actually sustain. And I did a lot of work that really feels meaningful. Right. And is that sort of that lack of feeling like you were doing something every day that fed your soul and fed your desire to help people? Is that what led you to make the career switch that you did? Yes, in part. I, I often will talk to people, and because I talk to a lot of lawyers and law students in the course of my day, there are different parts of why a person stays or leaves a profession. Some of it is I'm missing something foundational. I'm missing something that mm -hmm. plugs into exactly who I am, something that allows me to look forward to the work that I do. Some of it was that there were parts of the work I really didn't like. I'm not a fighting person. Sure, I can go in and wipe the floor with you in court, but I'm not going to enjoy it. Sure, I can go in and win an argument in family law where I have to denigrate the opposing party. But if that opposing party is also a parent who really doesn't need her struggle with alcohol uh, plastered all over a courtroom in front of a whole group of people, this is apparent to the child. Just because it's not my client, it didn't feel right. So there's the element of what am I missing in terms of mm -hmm. positively? And there's also what is aversive? What is something that is 
making me feel unpleasant, the arguing and the incivility and all of that, and also, in the case of family law, the sense that the system wasn't optimal. Hmm. The system didn't always get optimal results, wasn't built optimally, and so I often felt like I was participating in a system that didn't always do right. The negative and the positive led me to, I got to do something more than just what I'm doing. And even in family law, I used to describe it as pseudo-social work. Hmm. So I decided to stop doing pseudo-social work and just do social work. <laughs> Was it a challenge to sort of, for lack of a better word, you know, start over, you know, a few years into your career, especially after we try to make our careers not parts of our identity, but I think most of us would be lying if we said what we do eight, 10, 12 hours a day is not a big part of who we are as humans. Was that a challenge to sort of start over? Huge. So it's a particular challenge for legal professionals because often we identify with our profession status. We identify as I'm a lawyer, not just what I do. It is who I am. Mm. Leaving law, I often will joke with law students that the law is not the mafia. You can get out, but it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> feel like that. It feels right. like once you're in, everyone you talk to, when you say to them, I'm thinking about leaving, they're like, why would you not want to be a lawyer if you're a lawyer? It's the top of the mountain. It's everything anybody could ever want. It's prestigious. You put all these years of work in. Why would you walk away from all of that? Even my mother, who gave me that name you so beautifully pronounced, when I called her to tell her, you know what? My job is killing me. I can't do it anymore. I quit today. She said, go back and beg for your job back. Hmm. A loving mother, absolutely, this was not in, in any way ill-intentioned, but she was afraid that I was giving up an established career for the unknown. That's often what gets in the way of people making changes, is the fear of the unknown. Hmm. Not everyone has the, I know what I want to leave, and I know where I want to go. I just had an inkling of where I wanted to go. And so that uncertainty was too much for her. She wanted to protect her son, even though he was 40. And we... Listen, I talk to people every day who are, should I stay, should I go? These are hard decisions. You do put a lot of work into it. You do make a lot of a lot of sacrifices to become a lawyer. To walk away from all that, to walk away from the prestige and the identity, the money for some people, it's a hard decision, especially if you're not sure if what's next will be anything worthwhile or any better. Grass isn't always greener. Mm -hmm. So these are absolutely hard decisions. Yeah. And it's something that I don't want to step on. You know, something that you said a few minutes ago is this idea of it's not just what you do every day, but it's also how you feel every day and who you are as a person every day and what your identity is and, and what tasks you're doing. I mean, all of those things kind of fit together. And, you know, I work with law students every day, which is sort of the other side of that, which is we try to remind them that they don't know what they're going to do, and they don't have to on day one, right? I, I say this on the podcast all the time, so anybody who's a regular listener will know this. Like The best thing you can learn from an internship or an experience or a coffee with somebody is what you want to do with the rest of your life. The second best thing is something you never want to do again, and you can check it off the list. And it sounds like that you were willing to take the leap because you knew it wasn't working, and you had to try something new. And let's just go a little further. I knew it wasn't working, and I had tried every way to make it work. It's mm, not as though the moment yes. I had an inkling that it was it was not for me, I walked away. We don't make change that easily. We, you know, I, I, I'm probably going to ruin this quote, but something about, you know, what Winston Churchill said of the Americans, they always do the right thing after trying every other option. You know, <laughs> I tried every other option before I left. 
it was the last resort, but it, things had gotten bad enough that change was necessary at that point. It was no longer an option. But yeah, it took a while. I gave it a mm. few years of trying to make it work before I realized, you know what? Don't put good money after bad. Let's leave it behind. I like to allude to Albert Einstein's quote that everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will think it's stupid. Hmm. And there are a lot of fish trying to climb trees in the legal profession. There's also a lot of monkeys climbing trees. A lot of people who are just killing it, loving it. It's a great profession for people who are suited to it. It's a terrible profession for people who aren't, hmm. who feel like they can't leave, feel like they have no other options, but who just goes, they're a fish. Go find some water. You'll thrive. Yeah. But it's hard to even imagine where the water is or even if it exists. Right. No, that makes a ton of sense. And you know, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk maybe a little bit about your work with lawyers now that you're on the other side. One of the questions that that I often think about is, it's well known that lawyers is a profession that has, as a profession, a lot of struggles with mental health. Some of it's spoken about, too much of it not spoken about. From your experience, is it that people who are drawn to becoming lawyers sort of need help in this area, or is it something about the profession, or is it both? Yes, the answer is yes to all of it. <laughs> it's about the lawyer personality. It's about the kind of person who enters the profession in the first place. It's been observed. There was an academic a few years ago, Susan, I think it was Susan Dacoff, who did a whole treatise on this idea of the lawyer personality. Issues of, you know, really good things like persistence and, 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 and autonomy and intelligence, really good things that serve a person in law or otherwise, but also pessimism hmm. and perfectionism. Things that end up hurting the person. Perfectionism is one of those that lawyers think is actually a great thing to have. Also, most lawyers will deny being perfectionists because they're not perfect enough to be classified as perfectionists. Right. But these are things that get in the way because you, if you're a perfectionist, it means you're never good enough, which means you can't be happy. You can't ever be satisfied or contented because there's so much more you could have done. You're so aware of how perfect a thing this could have been had I just mm. applied myself more, had I just perhaps not spent any time at all with my kids and maybe not slept last night. Right. We sacrifice ourselves. And we're in a profession that's fine with us doing that. It's going to pile on all kinds of things. So first, the personality, which can get in the way of the perfectionism, but also that pessimism. Martin Seligman, who's sort of the godfather of positive psychology, re references this. You hand a lawyer a contract and say, find every hole you can find and plug it. The lawyer finds every hole, focuses on negative, 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 plugs the hole, and is rewarded for that focus on the negative. Problem is they then go home and find all the negatives in their house and all the negatives in themselves. They're focused on the negative. They take the positive for granted. That's how it should be. I'm not going to congratulate you for not killing anyone today. You weren't supposed to kill anyone today, but I will comment on the things you did badly. So that pessimism serves us in the work, but gets in the way of quality of life, especially in our assessment of ourselves, because one of the other elements of the lawyer personality is hyper self-criticism and self-judgment, not giving one any quarter at all, hmm. never letting one be in any way imperfect. And, and, and finally, the other part of the personality is isolation. The autonomous part creates autonomy plus judgment equals shame hmm. and therefore isolation. So the person feeling that they are failing feeling that they are failing in the context of a profession full of 
superstars, all brilliant. All, I mean, you deal with law students. The first day of law school, they all look around and see a bunch of impressive people and think, I don't belong here. Right. I'm not smart enough to be here. I see it all the time, particularly with vulnerable students, you know, racialized students, LGBTQ students, um, native students. They feel other, and it's hard for them to find their place because the profession doesn't necessarily shore them up or reinforce that they belong or reinforce that they're that some of their differences actually will make them better at this. And so they end up struggling, but struggling alone. They isolate because mm. they don't want to talk to anyone because they assume if I'm a failure, if I talk to someone about what I'm doing, they will think I'm a failure too, that we project our self-judgment onto everyone we meet. Why would I want to subject myself to that? Mm. So I'm just going to keep it to myself, buck up and try to figure it out which is hard because isolation doesn't really lend itself to resolution of these things. Yeah. I mean, a lot powerful there and a lot to think about and unpack. And look, I'll be vulnerable for a second about my own practice, right? When I started as a civil litigator and pretty quickly had two children and I felt, I often told people, I was like, I feel like I'm 60% of the lawyer I could be and 60% of the dad I can be. And guess what? That means I'm at 120% of my sort of, my, my pie chart was, was overflowing. And I did have you're some- You're also 80%, you're also 80% less than you could be. Right, right, exactly. Yes, yes, 100%. And <laughs> 100%. And that was just something that, that I struggled with. And, you know, again, to sort of, echo back what you're saying, the times that I felt like I was starting to think about that in a in a meaningful, positive way were when I did it talking to other people and realizing that I was not alone in this. And it's impossible to be the perfect parent. It's impossible to be the perfect lawyer. And so if that's your standard, then you're never going to hit it. I mean, I guess, you know, you work with law students and lawyers all the time. What are some of the not easy ways, but practical ways of leaving this feeling of isolation. Is it just talking to other people? Are there other techniques sort of that can help people who are doing pretty well, but just need a little bit of a pick-me-up in this area? Big question. So there's the inward stuff, which is the self-judgment, which can be counteracted by self-compassion. Hmm. I mean, there's, there's actually a book by Kristen Neff called Self-Compassion, uh, which a lot of people use, which is just about learning to listen to the inner conversation, the negative self-talk, the inner criticism, and coming to an understanding that inner criticism is not inherently correct. Thoughts, generally speaking, are not metaphysical truth. They're just thoughts. They can be accurate, not accurate, distortions or aligned with reality. So if you have a lot of criticism inside of you, it's going to weaken you but you're probably not going to be thinking, I shouldn't be so critical of myself. You should be, you'll probably think the critic's voice, which is stop being such a baby and get back to work. Mm. So we want to develop a relationship with that critic. First of all, we want to develop an awareness of the critic. So we want to listen for the negative self-talk and then personify it as other than ourselves. Because the critic is not you. The critic is often a parental voice. The critic is often a scared child you as a child, unhappy, a traumatized child, perhaps, because a lot of people in the profession became adults through years of traumatic experiences too, and they bring that with them and it affects their behavior as adults. So listening to the inner dialogue, is it a healthy, self-loving, kind dialogue 
or is, is it self-judging? Because after all, you know, good parents squeeze the juice out of their child, every last mm. bit of potential. And we do that by withholding love as a reward at the end of the rainbow. When the child does what they're supposed to do, we will reward them with love, except there's still more the child could do because they only got 98% of their test. What about that last 2%? So we withhold the love because we think it's a good parenting technique, hmm. except the love is the fuel on the front end. Right. But a lot of us came up in cultures and in families that didn't believe that. It believed it was coddling. I can't tell you how many clients I speak to who think that if I'm nice to myself, I'll get lazy and complacent and mediocre <laughs> because that's what we were taught. We were taught that kindness softens people. I believe there's a lot of people out there who still believe it. There's a whole political discourse around manliness and all of that. Right. There's a lot of manly men who are cowering in corners from all the pressure, but aren't showing anyone. So there's the inner dialogue, learning that the dialogue you have going on inside of you may not actually be the thing that is leading to the best productivity, the best satisfaction, mm -hmm. the best sustainability. And then there's the outer stuff. What do you do? Well, we've discussed earlier about me leaving law because it didn't align with my values as well as it could. If you're doing that every day, if you're working in something that doesn't serve you, in fact, maybe even be at cross purposes to your values, you're going to burn out because your insides know the truth. I know the truth. If I'm a like a liberal-minded, you know, environmentally-minded person and I'm working for an oil company, on the oil part of the business, there's nothing mm -hmm. inherently wrong with the oil part of the business. I'm not making a value judgment here, but if I come at it from the perspective of climate change and, and fossil fuels and all of that, I'm feeding something that I believe is wrong and I'm doing it every day and I'm getting paid for it. That might mm. erode my sense of self, my own belief that I'm a person of integrity. That's a moral injury. That hurts people and people can't sustain that. Hmm. And people get angry at themselves for it. Like they're not strong enough to stand up for their values or something. So hmm. working in something that aligns with your values is mental health too. Because you get to be you. And the most contented, happy people, the mentally healthiest people to me are the people who are themselves without apology. That means they're not who their parents want them to be in the profession their parents want them to be in. They are not people who work in, in professions that someone else wanted them to be in, or they got in law and now they can't leave, even though they might want to, or maybe it's not even just about leaving law. It might just be that you're in the wrong area of law. You know, moving into family law made a big difference for me from other things that I was doing. Or it may just be the environment you're working in. If you're working in a big law firm and you're working the, the hours that they work, some people are good with that. If you are not, that's not going to be sustainable either. There are studies about big law firms in, in Ontario here that showed a higher level of depression than other lawyers. Well, you would think they've reached the top of the mountain. Aren't they happy? Well, they don't have the work-life balance that maybe they want. So the environment you're working in, is it suiting you? Not just in terms of the workload, which is a big piece of the puzzle, also in terms of the culture. Yeah. Are people nice to each other? Are you berated in the hallways by a senior partner who just likes to occasionally just let off steam on you? That's not sustainable. You're not supposed to be able to just take that, even though a lot of law students and young lawyers think that's just law. I'm supposed to be able to yes. take it. I actually had one young woman, a first-year lawyer, this is probably 12, 13 years ago, who was let go of a firm and was actually suicidal. I, was, I took her to the hospital 
she felt as though she completely failed. Except I discovered that she was being sexually harassed by two of the partners. Hmm. She thought she was failing. I guess that's just law, and I, I'm not cut out for it. As opposed to, it was a pathological workplace that she needed to get out of. And I can tell you that years later, she's doing really well. But at the time, all she knew was, I can't handle this. I guess that means I'm failing, as opposed to the system is failing. So that kind of awareness of the environment you're working in, is it healthy or not, is very important. And then, are you living a full life beyond your professional life? Right. I, I often use for law students uh, the analogy of an Olympic athlete. So if you have the top pole vaulter in the world, does that pole vaulter work at her craft 18 hours a day? Is she just pole vaulting 18 hours? No, she's probably making sure to get enough sleep. She's probably eating well. She has coaching. She probably has a therapist. She has a bunch of friends she spends time with. She takes vacations. She attends to all of the elements of the organism because the human being is actually an organism. It's not a robot. Mm. It's not a machine. Right. We treat ourselves like machines to our peril, and a lot of us do. If you attend to all of those different parts of you, you then, like the pole vaulter, can apply yourself to your event when the time comes as an optimized person, which means you're excellent. Notice I said excellent, not perfect. Hmm. I love that. I love that. One of the things that that I think is a challenge, and I hear it in my students, and I hear it in my sort of friends and, and colleagues and former colleagues, is for a lot of law students and then ultimately lawyers, they get to the profession because they've been so successful their whole life, right? The, the sort of, I tell my students when they come in, right, they've been put, they may not have noticed, but they've been put on bell curves since they were little kids. And they've always been on one part, that really far edge of the bell curve. And then you pull that bell curve, you zoom in, and there's another bell curve, and then you zoom in again. And now they're, at least in, in our system, which, which is graded on a curve, they're put on yet another bell curve. And for some of them, by definition, they're not going to be at that top end of the bell curve. And that's part of the system, as you said, right? The system has a huge impact. And I guess the question I have is, for people who have never needed mental health support, how does one know that they should get some professional help, some either coaching or therapy, or is it good for everybody? I think there's a little bit of a stigma of sort of going that first time and finding someone to talk to. And well, actually, I can work this out myself, or I have really good friends and we can work it out together. Talk me through that process for someone who's never really thought through it. Especially for someone who's been, at least objectively speaking, in terms of school, successful. Right. They may, by the way, not have been particularly mentally healthy while they were being successful. Right. They may have been depressed, but highly functional by virtue of their intelligence or their motivation. Or I know people who were successful in school simply because they were so motivated by having grown up in poverty mm -hmm. that they needed to make a good living. They wanted to be lawyers so they'd never have to be subjected to the kind of poverty they had when they were growing up. These are all kinds of reasons. That's a lot of trauma to carry while you're being successful. So how do we know? Listen, it starts with the lawyer brain, which assumes it's something wrong with me. I heard it described as terminal uniqueness. <laughs> sure, there are people who have anxiety or depression, and sure, there are therapists who could help them, but they ain't met the likes of me. I'm a special kind of depressed that can't be helped 
Mm. I'm a special brand. So they often feel like they're not helpable. Sometimes it's that they will assume there's no therapist who could handle them. You know, they're not smart enough. And it often is true with legal professionals. A lot of therapists don't get life practice. So they will give feedback that just doesn't land well with the lawyer because hmm. that's not how it works in law. So they get frustrated with all of therapy because it's just not going to happen. Right. It's why I kind of have this niche, right? Because I speak that shorthand and sometimes it's useful for them. But that that sense of I'm the problem, which means I'm going to have to fix it. I'm a lawyer. I fix other people's problems. I don't need that. I also can't show vulnerability. I have to keep it all in and not let anyone know that I'm a, I'm a mess inside, which you can only sustain for so long. And so that's part of the, the, the obstacle. To me, at a minimum, you want to get a sense for yourself of how do you feel? Not how should you feel, because hmm. stop shooting on yourself. There is no should. There is how you are. Is how you are okay with you? And what I mean by that is, do you look forward to getting up in the morning and going to work, or do you dread it? Is Sunday night a good time, or is Sunday night a moment of dread, because here comes Monday? Mm -hmm. Do you enjoy your relationships, or do you shy away from relationships? Do you look in the mirror and see someone who you generally like, or are you constantly feeling these critical voices in your head that you're never good enough? That's the sense of day-to-day well-being. If you're not feeling well, and I don't just mean physically well, I mean like if you're feeling down, if your mood is low, and I'm not talking here about diagnosing medical conditions like depression or generalized anxiety disorder or OCD or even, uh, even addictive uh, conditions. I'm talking about how's your life going? How are your relationships? How's your sense of self? How's your sense of well-being? Do you feel okay most of the time? Nobody feels okay all the time. That's an important thing to note. Nobody feels mm -hmm. okay all the time. You're not subpar because you have hard days. Everyone has hard days. Right. But if you have sustained hard days, and hard days can just mean that you're you're sitting at work and you just can't get any work done, you're distracted, you're feeling down, you're feeling anxious about things, you're constantly thinking about how you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough. Often I will talk to students in Ontario here in Canada generally we have a thing called articling, which is the the one year of essentially um, apprenticeship or internship in a law firm prior to be called to the bar and they will often work you know 20 hours on a memo that should have taken three right because they don't know what enough is they haven't done it and we will often do a, a, a an experiment i'll say pick a project dial back your effort 15 percent. see if anybody notices hmm. every single time i've done that with someone no one ever noticed because they were doing too much so they didn't have any sense of calibration, any sense of what enough was. So they carry this anxiety about not being good enough. And what if I didn't get hired mm -hmm. back as an associate when my articling year is over? What will I do? My career will be over. Everything feels so big at that stage of a career. Every mistake feels terminal. So how are you feeling? And the way I would say it is, you asked about, is therapy for everyone? Yeah, I think everyone could benefit from it because everyone could benefit from a, an objective perspective. Mm -hmm. The key is finding someone who you click with. Not every therapist is someone you're going to feel comfortable with. And what I would invite you to do is when you talk to someone and you don't feel a click, don't think, well, I guess that's just what therapy is and I'm done with it. Think that wasn't a good click. 
Think of it like dating. You didn't quit all dating because the first date you ever went on didn't go well. <laughs> you kept trying until you found someone you had chemistry with. Right. Find a fit, find a click, and then mm -hmm. get perspective from outside of your brain. A lawyer left alone with their own brain is a dangerous person. They have lots of talent, lots of ability in there. They can take tiny bits of information and just spin them out into catastrophe. And without any perspective from anyone else, that's their truth. Hmm. And you sort of started on the track that I was going to ask next about, which is how to find someone that clicks. What do you recommend to somebody who's never asked for help or professional help in their life in sort of finding the person that they feel comfortable talking to? So one piece of advice that I think you already gave is, and I think it's brilliant the way you put it, that it, it just just because one person doesn't click doesn't mean talking to somebody and getting therapy might not click. But what other sort of things do you recommend when someone's trying to figure out what's going to work for them or who might work for them? It's going to be very much about their own feeling. You've had a conversation in your life with someone that just felt natural and comfortable. What you want from a therapist is kindness, validation, competence, which you can get from, you can glean from how they're conducting themselves, whether you feel like the feedback you get from them is constructive. I mean, I can tell people really hard things, things they don't want to hear. But because I think I'm framing it in a way that where I've established trust, I've established I'm there for them, they're willing to hear it. They want the truth. They just want, you've heard, you know, the, the, you may have heard the distinction between feedback and criticism. People say constructive criticism. Well, because criticism often feels like it's about the criticizer, that there's an agenda. Right. Feedback is simple. Good, honest feedback is awesome. Right. If you feel like you're getting good, honest feedback from a therapist, that's what you're after. And it's going to be ultimately how you feel about it. Do you feel comfortable? Do you feel like you're heard? Do you feel like this person gets you? If they don't get you, do they ask more questions as opposed to make assumptions? Are they kind? Do they seem to click with your style? Mm -hmm. All of those things. In terms of how to find it, it really is trial and error. I just want to, you know, note for everyone, I think every jurisdiction in the United States and I know in Canada has a lawyer assistance program. Mm -hmm. There's an umbrella organization called COLAP, which is under the American Bar Association. They're all free programs. They're different in the sense that some of them operate as sort of voluntary programs where you call in voluntarily and you ask for help as opposed to some of them which are connected to bar associations. Right. And it just depends. I know in California, I think it's connected, New York as well. The idea is start with people who get you. And that's not just counseling, by the way. Here in Ontario, in British Columbia, in a number of jurisdictions in the States, they also have peer support programs. Peer support isn't counseling. It's other lawyers. But there are other lawyers who've been through things that are similar to what you're going through right now. They get it. Hmm. They speak the language. They're there to just offer kindness and perspective. And think about it, based on everything we've talked about today around self-judgment and the sense of, I'm not good enough, and I was an A student my whole life, and I just got a C, oh my God, what am I going to do? Well, you talk to another lawyer who says, yeah, I went through that. I had that experience. Hmm. Here's how I handled it. Oh, and by the way, look at me. I'm very successful. Maybe you don't have to be perfect, and you can still be successful. They offer validation. They offer also a window into what's possible, that you can actually have a healthy life in the profession, even though you've been through hard times. It's not disqualifying. 
Hmm. So peer support is important. Counseling can be very, very helpful. Also being part of social groups, organizations that are your people, whether it's, um, you know, litigator groups, whether it's family law groups, whether it's groups of South Asian lawyers, whether it's Hmm. groups of LGBTQ lawyers, whether it's um, criminal lawyers associations, whether it's your local association in your local state or, or, or county where people just get together just for social reasons, find your people because they'll get you in ways that other people don't. And you want to have that validation. You want to have that sense of, yeah, it's not just me. I actually hmm. belong to a group of vulnerable, successful people and they support each other. There's lots of ways to get support. Notice how all of them involve not being alone with yourself in your own head. Right. And I guess the other sort of the flip side to that is what what can folks do who who want to be helpful, who see someone who's struggling, maybe it's somebody in their law firm or in their law school class. You know, I think there's this element of people don't want to sort of say is everything okay? You know, what do you recommend for those who sort of see a change in a in a friend or a colleague or a fellow student? that's helpful, but not sort of pushy. I I don't know how else to ask that. Well, it's it's the perfect way to ask it. And you actually framed it really well. They're noticing that the person is different. It's not that they're diagnosing the person. It's not, oh my goodness, I smelled alcohol on his breath. Hmm. He must be an alcoholic. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, I know how that person is when they're well. I know how they are in terms of their productivity at work. I know how they are in terms of mood, in terms of attendance in the office, in terms of humor or lack thereof. I know that person at their reasonable best. They're not that right now. And at the core of the approach is kindness and empathy. Not like sympathy in the sense of you poor thing, but empathy in terms of, and there's all kinds of ways. I'm just giving you an example or two, but simply, sure. how you doing? you haven't seemed like yourself lately. You want to get a coffee? Now, this is Mm. new recently because people have been getting coffees in the last couple of years, but maybe it's going to happen again. It tells you also how the pandemic really affected people's mental health because the isolation was doubled and tripled and they were isolating Mm. in homes that had liquor cabinets. Yeah. So the anxiety was high and the access to substances was higher too. So that became a problem also. Just the kind approach. If the person says, no, I'm fine, you can let that go. You can just let them know, I'm here if you want to talk. One of the things that happens is, on the one hand, the person may be alarmed that someone is noticing they're not well because they've been, they thought they've kept their secret well. That happens a lot with addiction, right? The denial of no one noticing that I've missed four, four court dates in a row because my assistant fixed it, right? I got adjournment. Right. So on the one hand, they're really un, unnerved by the fact that someone is noticing. On the other hand, they are instructed by the fact that someone is noticing. The jig is up. They're not, you know, pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. People see that they're not well. Maybe this is more serious than I gave it credit for. So that can also spur on potential action, even if it's not involving the person who said something. Maybe it just a lot forces them to perhaps go look for help elsewhere or talk to a family member. Have you noticed something in me? Or whatever it is, it's a process. What you want to do is come alongside the person and be with them where they are. And be kind to them where they are. It's in, in counseling terms, it's a technique called motivational interviewing. You don't go head to head with the person face to face and challenge them. 
because they're going to put their wall up immediately. Oftentimes, going to pull that wall up anyway because they don't want to show any vulnerability. But as long right. as you keep doing that as a one-to-one thing. Now, as as I'm saying it, I'm realizing we're still talking about lawyers in a system. If the firm you work in, for instance, does not have an open, empathetic culture, then it may not seem safe to say anything, even to a colleague who's being nice, because maybe they're being nice just to draw it out of me so that they can expose me for the failure that I am. That doesn't feel safe. So if you ask the question, how do we help someone? I want to expand your question to how do organizations help people? How do organizations create workplaces that support mental health? And the first thing I'll say is they don't just work them to the bone and then give them a yoga room or the occasional Mm -hmm. wellness seminar. That ain't going to do it. They've got to put their money where their mouths are. They've got to mean it. It can't just be lip service. We care about your mental health. It has to be that your ancients back up your your, your statement about it. And sometimes that means hmm. that they're not producing as many billing hours. Right. If that's a consideration. And it's not always a consideration. Sometimes it's just that there are a couple of lawyers who are rainmakers in the firm who happen to be just horrendous to the young associates. And the firm tolerates it because they're rainmakers. Will the, does the firm tolerate right. that because that toxifies the culture? So that's a way to help people too. Absolutely, right? I think that makes a ton of sense. And you know, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard you know, from friends and colleagues that the first time anybody's ever heard something negative about one of those challenging partners is during an exit interview. And you know, the partner says during the exit interview, I wish I had known before this was an exit interview because we do care about you and we think you're doing great work. But you're right, they have to put their money where their mouth is and not just their money, but their, you know, the way they practice. And let, but let's be honest, I wish I had known is also a little convenient because everyone knows who's yes. problematic or not in a firm, starting with the support staff. The legal assistants and the law yes. clerks know exactly what's going on in the firm and who are the problems mm-hmm. and who does one need to tiptoe around. And the firm knows it is not a secret. You're absolutely right. I think that. And it's it's a problem because then the associate who's working there feels as though the firm is complicit. The firm is is tacitly agreeing hmm. that this is, I guess, okay, because this is what we need. So we're willing to let you be treated that way. Hmm. Yeah. And so I think you're right. The answer is you have to change the culture of the firm. And if you don't change it, right, that's on you for not changing it. And by the way, this isn't just a moral argument. The firm that changes that culture has better retention. They have better loyalty of the people who work for them. There's a lot of turnover in the profession now, especially during the Great Resignation. Absolutely. A lot of people are taken off of places they wouldn't have taken off from before because life's too short to be treated this way. Maybe that helps firms realize that it's not, it, there's, a, there's a financial reason to do that too. Hmm. Yeah. The business case for mental health perhaps, right? Well, look, this has been amazing. And I, you know, I can't believe we've already sort of come towards the end of our time, but I always like to end my interviews asking for advice, particularly for law students and junior lawyers. And I know you do a lot of sort of training, uh, not just one-on-one counseling, but training for law students and junior lawyers. So maybe what's your, a takeaway that you'd want to give to those folks that are just entering our profession and are, and are our legal future? So my first piece of advice is small, but, um, but necessary. I tell all law students, uh, don't listen to other law students. They have no idea what they're talking about. 
Absolutely. Law students make each other nuts with all their, you know, declarations about what it takes to be a good lawyer, what's the best place to work, all of that. They have no idea. So stop listening to them. And that fits with the other piece, which I mentioned earlier. Do you bring your unique skill set and, and set of passions to the table and make that work? And if it means that the marks aren't as high, if it means that you don't go to the firms that everyone in the profession is telling you is the only good place to go to, that's fine. Do you let fit the law into who you are. Don't fit yourself into the law. Be you hmm. in all of this. That means values-wise, it means the kind of people you want to work with. It means the kind of environments you want to work with. It means the kind of workload you want to have. You make this your career. Don't tell it. Don't have anyone tell you this is the way to be a good lawyer. This is what a successful lawyer looks like. This is the kind of place you need to work to be viewed as successful. Garbage. You decide what success is and then run with it and run with it aware that all along the way things will change you will change so you need to adapt it i've played with the martin luther king um, saying that the arc of the moral universe is long but it mm -hmm. bends towards justice well the arc of a legal career is long it bends towards fulfillment huh. it doesn't have to start there sometimes you take the job you can get sometimes you take a job in an area of law you were sure you wanted to do and then you realize as you do it, I don't know if I really want to keep going to court. I don't know if I'm a litigator. I thought I was, but I'm not really liking it. But I do like all those negotiations and transactional work. Maybe I just, so you adapt. Or maybe you're working in an mm -hmm. environment that you thought you wanted, but it turns out you don't like that environment because of workload or because of location or whatever. You adapt, you bend the curve and you bend the curve and you bend the curve. You didn't fail because you didn't get the perfect job straight out of your call to the bar. It was all along the journey, you're learning, you're discovering. It's okay not to have picked perfectly right out of the gate. But stay aware of the fact that wherever you are, if it's not working for you, you can make a change. Fret about the whole, you know, what is, what's it going to look like on my resume if I've firm hopped? Well, if you firm hop to the best possible firm, go firm hop. Do it. Right, right. Do what you got to do to make this the best career you can make it based on your values and your interests, nobody else's. Wow. Well, I think that's an incredible note to end on. And I'm just so grateful you took the time uh, to be here. If you're looking, if you're looking to hear more, um, I know Daron is on Twitter uh, at Daron J Gold. Is that right? Yep, at Daron J Gold and um, has a website as well. And I'm just grateful that you took the time to be here and speak with me. It's my pleasure, John. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.